Today's reading is from Exodus chapter 34, verse 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Good morning, Rio Vista. All right. Well, my name is Sam Caston Smith, and I'm the pastor of education here, and I also work with a team over at uh, Bethany Christian School across the, the street. And uh, this morning, it's my privilege to get to share this passage with you and just to talk about how beautiful and awesome our Savior is. If I were to be honest with you about what my typical prayer life looks like, it would go something like this. Lord, help me to love Laura as a husband better. Lord, help me to be a better dad to my three boys and my little daughter. Lord, help me when I get the angry email that comes through my inbox not to be shattered by its words. And all trot up in anxiety, Lord, help me to know how to, to achieve peace. Help me to do this or help me to do that. At Bethany this year, we have our spiritual theme for the year is one thing. And it's taken from Psalm 27, 4. And I, I just want to read that verse together. And before we do, I want you to know that when David writes this, if you read Psalm 27, you learn that he's got in his mind armies coming against him, his city being encircled, slander against him. He's got enemies rising up from within his midst. And so when he goes to the Lord and he offers his one thing, Lord, this is what I want. Man, there's <laughs> like you got a list, David. You could ask for peace. You could ask for change of circumstances. You could ask for the slander to stop. You could ask for all these things that are like right in your face in the moment. David says this, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this only is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. And bam, right there is the wisest, most powerful prayer you can offer up to the Lord. And if you leave here with nothing else from this morning, I want you to go forward from this service thinking one thing, one thing, one thing. Man, he really, one thing, one thing. This is the one thing you should want more than any other. Why? 
Why? Because when you draw near to the Lord, when you seek to be in His presence, and when you seek to see Him for how beautiful and glorious and mighty and powerful and wonderful He is, what happens to all your other requests? When you stand before the God of the universe, when you seek to know Him and all of His attributes a little bit more, and you realize that this God with His infinite attributes of love that never ends, mercy that never ends, grace that never ends, holiness that never ends, and He is all in for you, even to the point where He would give His own Son that degree of beauty and love stands waiting for you to come into his presence if you believe that the God of the universe loves you to that extent and he controls your yesterdays, your todays, and your tomorrow. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning of the end. If you believe that, And you can draw into his presence and take comfort with who he is and see the beauty of him and his promises. What happens to all those other requests? All those things that you want, all those things that he has made you to desire, he's the wellspring of all of it. Is he not? Is he not the wellspring of peace? Is he not the wellspring of love that fills you to overflow to others? Like anything that you seek with a godly heart, seek to be in his presence. Let him fill you and overflow you. Draw near to him and want to see his beauty more and more because here's the deal. When you go into the presence of God, it transfigures and transforms and changes you like nothing else in this world will. Not your striving, not your effort, not your checklist, not your desires. You go into the presence of God and see how beautiful he is and see how wildly he loves you. That changes you. This is applicable to today's passage where Moses, now for the second time, is climbing Mount Sinai. The first time that he climbed Mount Sinai for 40 days, he received the commandments. He came back down. He sees the people already they'd walked away from God. They built the golden calf. They're engaging in sin that I'm not allowed to talk about as a headmaster. Bad, bad stuff. He destroys the tablets. And then he spends 40 days pleading with God, forgive your people. Please forgive your people. And then he goes back up because God shows mercy and he renews this covenant. And he says, Moses, come back onto the mountain. And Moses goes up and he spends 40 days with God again. In the presence of Mount Sinai, which is not a peaceful place, if you were to understand the way that the Bible describes Mount Sinai, this is not a vacation resort at all. (laughs) The mountain is described as being covered in fire. Smoke like a kiln going up to heaven. The ground is trembling all around you. Trumpets that are deafening of God's glory, blasting. So much so that the people, when they come to this worship service, are not saying, oh, let me draw near. They're saying, get him away from me. In all of my sin and all of my shame and and everything that I bring to the table, I want nothing to do with a God that is that fearsome. 
And the Lord responds and says, you're right, you can't come to me. I can't have a part in all of your selfishness and all of your corruption and all of your pride and arrogance and your cruelty and your racism and all this stuff that humans naturally are drawn to. I won't have a part of it. So do not touch this mountain or you will die. And yet he calls Moses up to be a mediator and insulates him and protects him. But this is a scary scary proposition that if you're like me and you you know who Jesus is and you know the heart of God you're like whoa hold on a minute that's that's not the way I see God and for good reason as we're going to find in our passage today when Moses came down from Mount Sinai for the second time with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. And this is pretty curious. Like, if you come down from a mountain where you've been with God and your face is shining, like that's that's something I would I would guess I would realize, right? But there's something here, like it's it's a subtle little thing that when you go into the presence of God and you're transfixed by how beautiful he is alone. He's the only thing that you need. He's he's your all-sufficient, all-satisfying source. Moses forgets entirely about himself. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Wouldn't you like to forget about yourself every once in a while? Stop all your anxieties and your fears and your stupidities and the things that keep you up at night and just be satisfied in who God is? To not even realize what he's doing like just to be self-unaware, there's something about that that's really beautiful. And but the question is, Moses comes down the second time from Mount Sinai, and this time he's shining. Why wasn't he shining like this the first time that he came down? And I think the answer comes in the fact that God is being gracious to him. The people you learned in the first time that he goes up and onto Sinai, and you learned this well before this, the people are so eager to turn on him. At every turn, they're grumbling against him and saying, Moses, you're the one who caused this. You're the one who led us out here to die. You're the problem. We want to bail on you. And so Moses, who's called into this ministry, who loves this people so much that he would lay down himself for this people, is turned on all the time. They turn on God. As soon as Moses goes up on the mountain and they're like, man, he's taking a little while too long. Let's build a calf and we'll worship that. Like these people turn on anyone at the drop of a dime. And so when Moses comes back down and this time his face is shining, I think it's the kindness of God to say, hey, Moses, they're not going to confuse this time about who is my messenger and who I've given authority so he comes down and it says that his face shone. And if, if you look at ancient artwork, that Hebrew word shone, which is karon, it literally means to grow horns. And so in a lot of ancient art, you'll see Moses with these kind of devilish looking horns coming out of his head, these beams of light, Michelangelo statue that you see in the middle on the top. He gives them horns. He looks like a, a cat or something. But that, the idea is he is radiating these, these beams of light. And this is where God, he's coming down with this message, the Ten Commandments, the law, that he's about to present to the people and have them enter into this covenant. And God says, this is how I'm going to validate you as my messenger. I want you 
to shine with my glory. In Egypt, a lot of their gods, remember they had just made the golden calf, which probably came straight out of their time in East Egypt, probably one of their gods like Hathor or Apis that was a bull with the horns. But one of the things that symbolized divinity in the Egyptian world, where these Israelites have just come out of, was these gods, you've probably seen them, like Isis. They have these horns that come up off of their head with a disc of light in the middle of the horns, and it symbolized divinity. And so here comes Moses with horns of light, and it's like he's rebuking everything that they have all put their hopes in saying, this is the one who has my authority. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him, but Moses called to them. And Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And I want to pause, like there's, there's a few different reasons why people think that Moses puts this veil over his face. So enter into this. Moses comes down from Sinai, doesn't know that his face is shining. He comes down and the reaction from the people is one that Moses has not gotten yet. Respect and fear. Every other time they're quick to turn on him. They're quick to forge their own way. But this time Moses comes down, face shining, and they're all like, um, um. Dude, you got, a, you got a skin condition, Moses. <laughs> like, you're shining, not sure what this means. You got the glory of God on you. You're reflecting it, and this is a little terrifying. And so people say that there's three possible reasons why Moses puts this veil over himself. One is, Moses is humble. And so he doesn't want to be reflecting the glory of God. I, I don't buy that one as much. The next one is he veils himself because the people were afraid of even the diminished reflection of God's glory. And so when they see even the diminished reflection of God's glory, they want nothing to do with Moses. They're terrified, which I got to say would come in pretty handy sometimes as headmaster. <laughs> oh, you've got a complaint. Come into my office. Like... <clears throat> But people fear him, they, they obey him, they want, they know that the glory of the Lord is upon him, and so they fear him. And in some weird way, I get this. People, he, as a shepherd, he wants to draw near to people, but they're all terrified of him, so they can't comfortably be near Moses. And so, I remember when, when I, before I became a Christian, not that I don't do this since I've become a Christian, but there were things where I would feel ashamed like, I'll give you an example. I was raised up Catholic, and so for a long time, I would go around with a St. Christopher necklace around my neck. And it was almost like a, kind of a good luck charm. It was a reminder to me um, that I thought, you know, God is looking out for me. But I'll tell you this. I would wear that thing every day. But when I would go out to drink, I would take it off. When I brought someone home to my house, I would take it off because I did not want that reminder of God, the reminder that he has a claim on my life, 
the reminder that I fall short, that I bring shame to the table, that I'm a sinner, that in a million ways I fall short of what he expects. Nope, take it aside, put it somewhere, get it away from me to where I can be my own God for a moment. And that's putting on the veil. Don't, I don't want to see that. I want to I do what I want. And so Moses does that for the people because they're so fearful. Another one, and I think this is probably the, the greater reason, and man, I can relate to this. He veiled himself to hide the fact that his glory was fading. The New Testament will tell, tell us that, that his glory was fading in his times. Do you know what that feels like? To walk as a Christian or to be in leadership and you hold yourself up as a pastor or as a Bible study leader or as the only Christian in your family or whatever the case might be, you are the Christian leader to your circles. And man, when you're on fire, when you are excited about the Lord, when you feel his favor and him all over you and you are just in love with him, man, that veil is up. You want the world to see everything you are. But then in those seasons when that glory fades, when the dry spell comes, when you don't feel so close to the Lord, when your foot starts to slip or wander away from the rock, Man, we put that veil up real quick, don't we? Everything's fine. No, I'm still the same. Everything is wonderful. I'm on fire for the Lord when inside. You know the glory feels like it's fading. You wonder where God is. Because man, that heart that you once had that that just shone feels like it's faded. You been there? Man, it's tempting to walk around with that veil, but let me tell you something that happens. When you walk around comfortable with that veil over your face, you hide all the brokenness. You hide all the shame. You hide all the sadness. You hide all the loneliness behind this veil, pretending that underneath it you're still shining. The Lord does not want you to hide behind a veil. He wants you to draw into his presence continually. To see his beauty. To let him fill you with the radiance. And to do that, you need to be honest about yourself. You need to be free to be vulnerable. To have your brothers and sisters take your wounds and your scars. And to minister to you. And to point you and show you to Jesus. And the precise ways that you need to be energized and filled up with the Spirit of God to receive healing. But if you're hiding all of that behind a veil, you won't shine. And so whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out and told the people of Israel that he was commanded, what he was commanded. And the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him again. In other words, let me get shiny, 
go out, do my ministry, put the veil back down while I'm fading, and the next time I have to do something, I'll run back into the presence of God, flip the veil up, bask in his glory again, go back out, charge for ministry, do my thing, and put the veil back down. There is a very dangerous thing about doing ministry that way. You know, you read these stories, or perhaps you know, perhaps you've been affected personally by this, of these pastors that are held up on pedestals, right? People look at them and they say, oh my goodness, look at their ministry. Look at how many people they've led to the Lord. Look how he loves. Look how he does all this. Look at the picture of their marriage and their wonderful kids. And look at how he does this and does that. And everybody thinks his face is shining behind a veil. Right? But inside, they're withering and they don't have the freedom. Maybe this is you. And you feel like, man the way that people presume I am. I don't have the freedom to pick up my veil and show that maybe I'm not as glorious as they thought. It's dangerous to be behind that veil and only to run to God when you need a refill. But here's what's wonderful. All this story of Moses with God coming in fire and smoke and the glory shining and and him having to put on, all this is wonderful, but here's the reality Our story is so much better than Moses's. Our mediator is so much greater than Moses. We have a better ministry. We have a better message. And I want to compare the experience of Moses and the Israelites with the experience of Christ and his people here today. Let's go back to Sinai. I want you to imagine being there. You come up to the mountain... It's quaking. The fire's there. The smoke is there. It's terrifying. Everybody's begging to be apart from God because they know they're too sinful to be in their presence. And God himself says, you shall set limits for the people all around saying, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And we hear that. Now, let's be honest. When you hear that, don't you say, man, that sounds like a different God. I, I I don't know that. Like he's super, super focused on holiness. In the New Testament, a lot of people will argue or believe that in the New Testament, his his passion for holiness diminishes. No. In the New Testament, God's hatred of sin and what it does to us and what it does to this world is expressed. That degree of hatred is expressed in the fact that his son hangs on a cross to defeat sin. He is not toned it down with sin. In fact, if I've got to compare quaking mountain, crucified son, which shows a greater degree of hatred for sin and desire for holiness? Holy moly, you would give your son for the sake of righteousness to conquer sin? You must really be holy. You can't dwell with that in your midst. This is the same God who goes to the cross It's no different, but something changes. In those days, the Israelites came around the foot of Mount Sinai and God said, do not come to me or you will die. And all the fury and wrath of God is visible in the mountain, this consuming fire. And so what does God do? Because the God of that extreme holiness 
is the same God of even more extreme love for you. You remember David's one thing? He says, this one thing I ask that I can dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon his beauty, to inquire in his temple. Lord, I want to be with you and I want to see your face. You know what Jesus' request is the night before his crucifixion? Father, I desire that they, you, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so David offers up his prayer in the midst of all these crazy circumstances, right? Armies coming and everything else. And he says, this one thing I want, you, God, I want to dwell and be with you and I want to see how beautiful you are. Jesus is one thing on the night before his crucifixion is to say this, I want them to be with me and to see my beauty. You, hear me, you are Jesus' one thing. The cross is coming. He prays that you will be with him. The army's coming. The wrath of God. Everything is coming. He prays that you will see his beauty. You are his one desire. And so what does he do? It's, it's marvelous. The Israelites can't go up on this mountain to be in the presence of God because it's, his holiness is there. His wrath is there. Anybody who goes up on this mountain is going to die. So what does Jesus do? He stands at the foot of another mountain. He takes the sin and shame of all his people, you and me, our failures, our shame, our hurts, our scars, our loneliness, all of our inadequacies, and he says, they're mine. And I know that if I walk up this mountain, I'm going to be the one that has to face the fire and the fury. I'm going to be the one who has to quench the wrath of God. Why? Because I treasure my one thing. You. There is nothing that Jesus receives by becoming a man and coming into this world apart from the glory of the Father. But how does he achieve the glory of the Father? By purchasing you. You're the only thing he receives out of his mission in this world. You are his one thing. Let that, that's radical. His one thing is a prayer request that you can answer. You can thrill the heart of God by answering his prayer request, which is this. Come and dwell with me. Come and see my beauty. Draw near to me. See what I will do with you. And what do we do? We treat him like he's the means to an end, not the end. No. He is our treasure, folks. All the things that we want in this world, he is the wellspring and supplier of. Why? Because you are his one thing. Man, he desires to share himself with you in abundance. All of his infinite attributes poured out on you forever. That's his one thing. That's what he wants. Answer his prayer. Hebrews 
then turns and it gets on this and it says, man, you have a far better ministry. You're not like the Israelites who stood at the base of the mountain with the quaking and shame and, and I don't want to go near there. After the ministry of Jesus, what, what does it say? No, not stand at the foot of the mountain and quake and tremble and try to avoid him. No, it says come boldly before the throne of grace. Come boldly. You stand, if you're in Christ, you stand dressed in the righteousness of God. All of your sins paid for at the cross. Come boldly. You're free now. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion. Oof and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels and festal gathering. When we gather here this morning and we worship, we're worshiping in communion with the saints that have gone before us, with the angels that are praising God in heaven, to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, hear this, of the righteous made perfect. They are made perfect. They are not perfect. They are made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of that new covenant that will make you perfect. Remember, God caused Moses' face to shine because he wanted to validate the authenticity, the authority of Moses in giving that message. And here's the deal. If you want God to validate the message of your life, you start by drawing into his presence and seeking his face. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, you are all the endorsement that we need. Look at your life. We don't need the shining face and the horns and all that stuff. Look at how they live. Look at how my people manifest the fruit of the Spirit. That's all the endorsement we need. And then listen to what he says. Your very lives are a letter that anyone can read just by looking at you. Christ himself has written it, not with ink, but with God's living spirit, not chiseled into stone like Moses in the tablets, but carved into human lives, and we, the church, publish it. You are the message that God wants to send into this world. The message of the gospel, not one of fear where the law is telling you you're not good enough, but one of of amazing hope and forgiveness that this God who rejoices over you, who makes you his one thing, forgives you and pours out grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, and makes you new and draws him to yourself and makes your life shine to a watching world that they will want to read that letter. They will want the God who supplies that glory and now, if, if the ministry that brought death, the ministry of Moses and the law, because the wages of sin are death and the Ten Commandments just tell you, in a sense, that you've failed, you're, you're, you don't measure up. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that grants the gift of righteousness from Jesus Christ that's fully paid for? Drop your shame. Drop your burdens. Drop your sin. Come to the one who makes you righteous in the sight of God. 
He goes on and he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Thank God. The veil is removed. There's no need to hide anymore. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where, there's, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's freedom. Jesus tells you, that, tells me that I'm a mess. I don't have to hide it. Guess what, people? I'm a mess. I got scars. I got shame. I got anxieties. I got all kinds of problems. And if I try to handle that on my own, it's going to be even a bigger mess. But when I come into the presence of the Lord and I listen and see him for all of his love, when I seek his face and I realize that my price tag came at the Son of God on a cross, I don't have to hide behind a veil. I'm purchased of God. You are purchased of God. Take the veil away. There is freedom in him. And, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being, hear that, being, it's a process, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Moses' radiance was perpetually fading until physically he could go into God's presence. But here's the deal. What has, what has Jesus accomplished for you? In removing your sin and paying your debt, where does the Spirit of God now dwell, Christian? In you. Jesus has given you this gift that David in heaven now only wished he could have had back then. He dwells in you. Your ability to go into the presence of God could be while you're doing dishes, sitting in church, at work, about to go into a rough meeting, riding in your car. You are perpetually in the presence of God because the living God dwells in you. And here's a reminder. He comes to you and says, hey, this one thing I want, dwell with me, be with me, seek my face and see what I will do with you. 1 John 3, 2 just says it plainly. This is what you're in for. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, heaven, think heaven, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when we see him face to face, we shall be like him. Because... We shall see him as he is. Listen to the logic of what the Apostle John is saying, because he experienced this, by the way. When you see God for all of his beauty, you will not be able to help but become more like him. Read that. Because we shall see him as he is. You want a trial run at heaven? Seek his face now. Draw near to him. Want to be in his presence like, like David who cries out, Lord, this one thing. Let me draw near to you and to see your face and I trust that that will take care of everything else. When you see him as he is, when you see how beautiful he is, it will make you become like him. So why not start now? You know, we go before the Lord 
And if you're like me, sometimes you wonder, God, why don't you answer my, my prayer? I wanted this or that or the other. Why, why haven't you moved? Why haven't you answered it? And here's the deal. God loves you infinitely more than you love yourself. And when he, in all of his wisdom, prays for what you need, what does he pray? Let them come and be with me where I am. Let them see my glory. In all of his wisdom, he knows that's what we need. More than all of our other prayer requests, we need him. We need to draw near to him. That's the prayer request of our Lord. Let's answer it. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your goodness. It is overwhelming to think that just as David prayed that you would be, that you, your presence would be the one thing he desired in the midst of all the craziness of life, stresses that far, far exceed my own. Lord, that was wisdom. It's like you told Mary and Martha when Martha was busy running around trying to accomplish everything and Mary just stopped and sat at your feet and your presence and gazed upon your beauty. You told her that she had chosen the better thing. Lord, help us to see the better thing, that we would want to dwell in your presence, to gaze upon your beauty, and that that would come and animate us, that it would make us to shine with your glory so that as the world sees the way that we live, that we would be the letters from you to this world. Lord, start revival and start in us, and we know that that comes by drawing near to you and seeing you for who you are. Help us to do that. Help us to make you our one thing. In Christ's name, amen.